This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, May 17th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. What is neoliberalism? Where did it come from? Where does it differ from libertarianism? Why is it that so often when someone calls you a neoliberal, they're not trying to be polite? And what is this, a crossover episode? Jeremiah Johnson is the policy director for the Neoliberal Project, and this, right here, what you're listening to now, is, yes, a crossover episode of the Cato Daily Podcast and the Neoliberal Project Podcast. So the term neoliberal was first used in the 1930s um, and, and really grew organically out of a couple conferences that were essentially gatherings of academics and people concerned about the state of liberalism in politics. Um, the Walter Lippmann colloque was one of these conferences and a min- one of the um, follow-ups that many of the people at the Walter Lippmann colloque attended was the Mount Perilin Society. Um, so I'm, I'm forgetting off the top of my head who actually coined the term, but in, in the late 1930s and 1940s, the term neoliberalism came about because this group of people was very concerned about the state of liberalism. Um, they were concerned about the fact that literal, you know, Nazi fascist uh, totalitarianism was on the rise, kind of on the right hand side of politics. And on the left, you saw the rise of literal Stalinist communism. Um, so they lived in a world where liberalism looked like a, a feeble, sick old man, and it looked like a failing ideology. And they thought they needed a new version of liberalism, a rejuvenated liberalism. And so they called it neoliberalism um, as an update to the classical liberal philosophy. Yeah, it's easy for people to uh, forget the times that uh, Americans lived in in the 1920s, 30s and 40s and what looked like uh, potentially an ascendant state control of, you know, the commanding heights of the economy, whether it be from the left or the right. It was. And this group of original liberals, you know, it had a lot of the Austrians. Um, it had uh, von Mises. It had Hayek. But it also grew over time to expand beyond that um, into the the Milton Friedman American crowd. And eventually it kind of it became a term that these were people seeking to influence the way that society developed, you know, as any ideology would. So what are the tenets? I mean, uh, you mentioned uh, Mises and Hayek and and people like that, and we seem to have a pretty clear idea about what those people represented. Uh, was he, would you have considered him a neoliberal? So he was one of the um, originators of the term, but it's interesting to think about the split between libertarians and neoliberals because I, I draw the line essentially at um, von Mises and he... He was one of the guys at the Montperlin Society, and he – I believe the story goes that he actually stormed out of the society saying that Hayek and Friedman and, and a lot of these other guys were, you know, damn socialists because they didn't agree with his kind of very absolutist view of what society should be. So you can count him as kind of an original neoliberal in the first few years that the term was being explored – but he certainly wasn't a neoliberal as anybody would have understood it in the decades later or or today. Um, it, there's an interesting split where I can almost – I feel like that's the original dividing line between libertarians and neoliberals 
is Mises storming out of the conference because how angry he was that some of them were in favor of government action at some points in time. Um, because both libertarianism and neoliberalism descend from that, you know, they descend from the same tree, the same philosophical tree, classical liberalism, but they did diverge paths at some point. So let's uh, let's boil down some of that. It 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 seems pretty clear that uh, neoliberals and libertarians support uh, robust, largely unfettered uh, markets. Uh, but I think where perhaps where libertarians would stop, which is to say, the the spoils of all of that uh, commerce, uh, wherever it goes, that's where it goes. And neoliberals maybe would go a step further and say, uh, this is what we collectively ought to do with some of the largesse created by uh, the productivity of the marketplace. Is that fair? I think so. I think I would characterize two different strains of thought there um, because there's two different functions of the state that I think neoliberals would identify as very important. Um, Libertarians and neoliberals both are very pro-market. Neoliberals would have the recognition that that markets have done enormous good for society. Um, They've made the world a better place and they're an extremely powerful tool. But neoliberals would also tend to temper that by also recognizing that markets are not perfect. Market failures can exist. Um, they Markets don't apply in every single situation and they can't fix every problem. So neoliberals would advocate for state intervention in the economy in a couple circumstances. One of those circumstances is just your classic fix market failure kind of situation where, you know, the, a market failure that you might see in an econ textbook like a... Um, a lack of perfect information or monopsony power or anything like that um, leads to a a poor result. And neoliberals would see the role of the state there as basically helping the market, not not government intervention because the market is bad, but government intervention to allow the market to be good, to put the market back in the equilibrium that it needs to be in. The second important point that I would make is that neoliberals are also – in favor of a welfare state. And this is different from, it's different from just correcting market failure. This is a little bit of a moral judgment that the state does have a role in alleviating the worst poverty um, in society. One of the things I like to say personally is that capitalism is extremely good at generating wealth. It's not always very good at distributing the wealth just because it's good at creating it. And if we want to create an inclusive society, there's nothing wrong with making sure that to some degree that wealth does get shared so that everybody has a stake in capitalism. I think there are reasons to support uh, a, a welfare state that are not, are not at all rooted in some sort of moral uh, argument. That is, uh, you could support a welfare state uh, and say, look, I don't want there to be a revolution. <laughs> Uh, and and that that seems that seems to be the the extent to which a lot of uh, libertarians are willing to to go along with the idea of local governments engaging in in uh, wealth redistribution. But I, I guess how do uh, neoliberals view the government as a perfectly adequate uh, provider of 
distributed wealth, that is wealth that is collected by the government and then redistributed by the government, and the fact that the government is, broadly speaking, utterly unable to direct markets in a productive way? That's a good question. Um, the first thing I'll say is just that we should recognize everything here is on a spectrum. You know, there are some libertarians who would want almost no government action of any kind ever. And there's some libertarians who you could call like welfare state libertarians who are fine with, you know, a, a universal basic income or something like that. Um, and then the government getting out of the way other than that. Uh, famously, both Hayek and Milton Friedman both supported the idea of a universal basic income. Uh, Friedman called his a negative income tax, but mathematically they work out to the same thing, assuming you have a progressive taxation system. A, a UBI and an NIT are essentially the same thing. So everything's on a spectrum. Um, a kind of the left libertarian might be pretty similar to a right neoliberal, if that makes sense. And, and neoliberals are similarly on a spectrum. When a neoliberal does think about the government's role I, I, I like to think that neoliberals live in the real world um, to an extent in that they don't believe in the state as being good just for the sake of it existing. They don't believe even necessarily in markets being good for the sake of just markets all the time. Um, but things are good for what they can produce. So we tend to have a lot of trust in kind of academic technocratic expertise and take things on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, there are ways in which the government is pretty competent. Um, Social Security is basically just a program to collect taxes and mail checks. And that's that's something the federal government can do without a whole lot of overhead. Overhead is like 1%, maybe less than 1% there. Um, fraud rates are very low. Similarly, I think less than 1%. And the, you know, it's it's not a complicated function for the government to just automatically deduct stuff from your paycheck, keep it in a giant spreadsheet somewhere, and then start mailing out checks at some point in your life. There are other projects that are a lot more complicated than that, that the government historically has been pretty poor at. Um, that, you know, like you said, trying to completely redirect markets um, is usually not a great idea. Um, and neoliberals would almost never be in favor of kind of a gigantic central planning mechanism for the state. I think the the evidence threshold would be a lot higher for that than for something like a simple redistribution formula that's essentially just mailing checks. I'm looking at this uh, piece on Vox that uh, you pointed to at uh, your website, The Neoliberal Project, uh, and the headline was, uh, everyone hates neoliberals, so we talked to some. So, uh, why is this uh, why is neoliberal today used as a pejorative is it is it just uh, is it is it just broadly opposition to markets in general it has to do with the evolution of the term the term itself has had a very interesting lifespan so the original conception of the term neoliberal was by people who thought of themselves as neoliberals and that's how it stayed probably through the 60s and and into the very early 70s but around the 70s the actual neoliberals stopped using that term quite as much. Um, and you saw more usage of the term on the left. Um, in the late 70s, early 80s, and through the 90s, you had what many people would have called a, a neoliberal revolution. A lot of social democratic states in Europe 
and in the United States with uh, Reagan, the Bush the first, and Bill Clinton, you basically had this wave of excitement for deregulation, uh, cutting taxes at the top marginal tax rate, um, denationalization. This was a bigger thing in Europe than it was in the United States, but there really was a wave of this kind of activity. And so a lot of people on the left were obviously very not, very not uh, enthused about this. If you're on the left, this is not something you view as a good thing. And they began to describe this wave as neoliberal. Everything where you deregulate an industry is neoliberal. Everything where you denationalize an industry is neoliberal. Every time you cut taxes or cut government services, it's neoliberal. So the left began to use the word neoliberal essentially as the same as libertarian. They viewed neoliberalism as kind of an extremist, cut everything, slash everything, uh, get rid of all government functions. And that's how the term stayed for quite a while through the 90s and into the 2000s. And it's only been within the last, probably the last five years or so, that the term neoliberal has made a comeback in that people are actively calling themselves neoliberals again. People are proudly sticking that label on themselves. But ultimately, there's, there's a long history of this. Um, in politics, there's a long history of people taking a term that used to be derogatory and capitalist. Yeah, capitalist. Well, I, I mean, if you go back even even further than that, you know, in England, the Whigs, the Whig originally meant cattle driver and it was an insult, um, but it was adopted as a party line kind of uh, name because, well, if you're going to insult us, we're going to be proud about it. Um, you know, I think the Tory was originally uh, another English one, but the conservatives calling themselves Tories, Tory was originally an insult. So this this has a long tradition, uh, you know, something becoming a slur and then being reclaimed. In the United States, you see this with the word socialist. It's now in vogue to call yourself some flavor of socialist, a, a democratic socialist or whatever the case may be, um, where, you know, for a long time during the neoliberal heyday, during the Cold War, socialist was a slur. So with respect specifically to uh, this the in vogue uh, nature of democratic socialist um, and socialist more more broadly, people like uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders, um, you know, if you got down to what they actually believe about how the world ought to function, it seems to be very much uh, state-owned enterprises, uh, states, the state owning the means of production is a, is a far more uh, salient idea to those people. But I would suspect for the vast majority of their fans, uh, if they had to actually sit down and work through it, uh, would not be as as popular a thing. And they might write, might correctly uh, call themselves uh, neoliberals, which is to say we support a welfare state, but yeah, we want all the benefits of all of this innovation and the uh, you know, regular deliveries of food to my local grocery store. That's an interesting question because we start to get into different lines of philosophical thought there. Um, there's a sense in which the left side of neoliberalism is not that different from something that in Europe you might call like social democracy. Um, in Europe, a neoliberal would be considered very right wing, but a social democrat would be fairly mainstream, maybe center left. 
But while those two people, you know, a, a social democrat and a left leaning neoliberal might have similar policy goals, they come from very different philosophical traditions. The the whole social democracy movement came out of the socialist movement, out of the the workers' rights movement in Europe. And it's just its philosophical heritage is more socialist in nature. Now, that doesn't mean that social democracy advocates are socialists. It just means that their thinking has been shaped by that history. And so they view the world through a different lens. Neoliberals, even if they've you know accepted a lot of state inter intervention and they think, oh, well, there's actually lots of instances where the state can do some good, they're still grounded in the worldview of markets are fundamentally good. We start with the assumption that markets are good and then notice all the ways in which, okay, but here we have to correct it and but here we have to correct it. Someone on the more social democracy side, which might be an, an AOC fan or a Bernie Sanders fan, who's not actually a socialist, they just like what these guys are saying. But this person, this social democrat is more grounded in the idea that I have to be suspicious of markets and in the end, I'm probably going to tolerate them but my default state is suspicion and and government intervention. So in that sense, there are times where you know your policy goals can align with someone, but your philosophical heritage and just your worldview is still fundamentally different. Can we go through some of the the uh, some ideas where uh, libertarians and neoliberals would agree and uh, perhaps differ um, and sort of suss out where? Uh, where those agreements and disagreements come from? Absolutely. Did you have anything particular in mind or do you want me to yeah. just... Uh... So uh, first of all, this is probably my most neoliberal view, which is that uh, local governments should not be in charge of zoning. Uh, to, the, to the extent that uh, there are huge uh, potential economic losses, I spoke with Ed Glazer about this uh, on the Cato, Pot, Cato Daily podcast a while back, and it's just the idea that uh, there is a lot of value that ends up getting locked up when you allow uh, the NIMBYs, the not in my backyard folks, to control uh, development of real estate uh, at a very, very local level. So where do ne where do neoliberals come down on that? Big fan of Ed Glazier myself. Uh, his book Triumph of the City. If anyone hasn't read it, I would highly recommend. Um, I think we would be in a hundred percent agreement there. Um, one of my favorite examples about the impact that zoning can have over the long run is to look at big cities in Japan. So Tokyo is thirty five or thirty six million people. It is probably the largest city in the world, depending on exactly how you count things, you know, what, what metro area definitions you're looking at. It's incredibly dense. And a one bedroom flat in Tokyo on a square footage equalized basis is like half the cost of one in New York, less than half the cost of one in San Francisco. It's much cheaper to live in Tokyo than it is to live in big American cities in the global American cities. And it's because zoning in Japan is done at a national level. There's a national, basically, board that zones everything. And so there is no localized NIMBY opposition that really can ever develop. And you go to Tokyo, and it's really crowded, but it's also just, it feels alive. And there's, you know, 
all sorts of stuff mashed up right next to each other, tons of mixed use development. Um, and so, yeah, I think we would be in a hundred percent agreement there that local zoning, local regulations like that are deeply harmful. Uh, let's start with, let's go to another uh, regulatory regime here. Uh, we were talking about AOC and Bernie a little bit ago. Um, they want to cap credit card interest rates at 15%. Now, the, the, and keep, keeping in mind that the, the median, I think, uh, interest rate on a credit card for somebody with good, with what's, what's considered to be good credit is like 16 or 17%. So that seems like a great way to ensure that it's impossible for poor people to get credit cards. Um, we, we made a joke the other day um, that neoliberals are just people who care about politics and also consider second order effects. Um, so, you know, it, it's great to say that you should cap the interest rate because it'll help, you know, people who have expensive credit card debt, I guess. But the end result is just that People, you know, people with high risk profiles are not going to be able to get credit. There is an experiment, um, a paper done by Jose Cuesta and Alberto Sepulveda. I'm sure I pronounced those wrong, where they looked at um, a policy in Chile that lowered interest rates by 20 percentage points, uh, kind of by fiat. And they saw that indeed interest rates went down by about 90 percent. Um, but also, it also reduced the number of loans given by 19%. So in the end, fewer people were getting loans. And you can imagine that was going to be concentrated in the poorer, higher risk sections of society. So you're against it. <laughs> yes. I, I, that's, that's an intervention where I don't think that the state needs to be uh, sticking its head in. Now, you mentioned uh, the welfare state and uh, that neoliberals uh, tend to support uh, some form of a welfare state. Some libertarians also do support uh, a, at least as you described it, a universal basic income or some replacement to the uh, welfare state as it exists today. I think libertarians broadly view uh, a UBI as second best alternative to uh, a private charity and uh, view uh, UBI as a better alternative to the Byzantine bureaucracy associated with a current welfare state. So if I had to put you on the spot and say current welfare state as it exists or none whatsoever where UBI is uh, is not on the table, would you have a, a clear choice there? So the choice is between the current welfare state and no welfare state? Yes. I would choose the current welfare state uh, without much hesitation. I think that it's imperfect, but there's very good evidence that it does a lot of good. What about how we tax uh, Americans, how uh, governments, state, local uh, and federal uh, take taxes out of our uh, paychecks or out of our transactions, um, our stock market purchases and sales and that sort of thing? Um, it's my understanding that a lot of neoliberals would uh, support a consumption tax over uh, income taxes or productivity taxes? What's your view? I'll say that I don't have personally extremely strong views on this. I'm not an expert in uh, tax systems or taxation, but I would tend to support introducing a consumption tax, lowering some taxes elsewhere, and probably also introducing a land value tax. Um, so this is an idea that uh, Glenn Weil has talked about uh, a little bit in his book, Radical Markets, right? 
Well, Glenn's idea goes a little bit further, and Glenn's idea it essentially abolishes private property as libertarians would understand it. Um, Glenn's idea is that everything should be permanently for auction and permanently taxed. You essentially, if you own a house, um, you get to set the value of that house and then pay taxes on it. So if you want to say it's worth $100,000 versus a million dollars, you can say that and the tax will be, say, 10%. So you have the incentive to set it as low as you want because you don't want to pay very many taxes. But the thing that makes it worthwhile is that it's permanently for sale. Whatever your listed price is, anyone can come in and buy it at any time. And so that gives you the incentive to price it you know, highly so that you don't lose value on having to give it up for a low price. So his idea is essentially turbocharging markets by saying you're not actually allowed to hold on to anything just forever. Everything is for sale all the time. It's like like turbocharged crazy capitalism in a sense. And your view is something short of that is preferable? <laughs> My view is just taxing the land is um, is enough um, without necessarily doing that. I think that idea has very interesting applications and I'd like to see it tested more often. This is the neoliberal sense in which we try to rely as much as we can on the evidence around specific cases. Um, one area that I think would be great to do that in is the federal spectrum for broadband. Um, the, the federal government controls and sells basically access to the wireless spectrum. And one of the problems that we have right now is that a lot of legacy businesses that create no value have a ton of that spectrum. Um, essentially, AM, FM radio gets a huge chunk of spectrum and nobody uses radio anymore. Nobody, nobody listens to it. It's not as valuable as doing it for something like Wi-Fi or, you know, uh, the 5G applications or internet-based things. Um, and so there's an issue where the radio companies just won't sell. You know, the market is not frictionless. It doesn't just work automatically. And so there's all this lost potential where you have these legacy dinosaur businesses holding on to spectrum that they don't need and they're not using. Um, that would be an interesting place to see Glenn Weil's idea of, you have to pay taxes on the spectrum and anybody can buy it from you at any time at your listed price. That's that's an interesting experiment that I think would be valuable. And if it works there, you know, maybe ex expand it after that. I don't hear neoliberals talking very much about uh, foreign policy, uh, or I should say I, I don't hear uh, any particular view of foreign policy uh, associated with neoliberalism very strongly, at least from its advocates that I'm aware of in the United States. Is there is there a broad agreement among neoliberals about what foreign policy or the 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 uh, threshold level of support for a war or uh, you know a, a constitutional rule regarding war? There's honestly not. There are very hawkish neoliberals and there are very dovish neoliberals. Um, I, I would not say that foreign policy is a uniting factor. Uh, a lot of libertarians like to point to the fact that uh, the federal government began providing benefits to your company for providing people with health insurance. 
Um, you know, there are other people who look even back even further to find examples of, of a fairly large public sector role in providing health care to uh, many groups of people. Libertarians broadly would like to, I suspect, eliminate the government's role almost entirely from health care uh, and allow insurance markets to work, allow uh, – you know, the, perhaps the second best, but one tenth of the price uh, therapies to emerge because of the comp competition among providers and uh, Americans who want to secure the best deal for themselves. Uh, what is your view uh, on how the healthcare sector ought to be uh, altered or reformed? And is that view broadly shared? So I'll speak for myself here. I, I suspect that I can give a reasonably good representation of what most neoliberals believe. I think that the the healthcare sector of the economy is one area where the federal government should be intervening and that I'm okay with large federal programs. The reason that I think this is that I think healthcare has a lot of really classic market failures. And it's a really good example of an instance where markets don't work for fundamental economic reasons, um, or at least that they don't work in the way that they work in, in a much more simple market, like, say, the market for soybeans, um, which, is, which is pretty much just a commodity and works extremely well. So in insurance markets for healthcare, you see a lot of instances of moral hazard, um, which means that people will behave differently once they have um, insurance, whereas as opposed to if they didn't have insurance. You see adverse selection where only the healthiest people are incentivized to get insurance or I'm sorry, only the sickest people are incentivized to get insurance. You also see a lot of other ones outside the insurance market. Um, hospitals are increasingly local monopolies, and there are basically chains that are buying up every hospital in a given metro area. Um, so you don't have a lot of actual competition. Um, there are huge, huge informational asymmetries where you know, if you're buying food to cook for dinner, you know exactly what you're looking for. You know what your options are. You have a lot of information about what it means to buy a chicken breast and what a good apple looks like and what a good squash looks like and, and what a can of peas will be compared to a, pan, a, a can of corn. If you're going to the doctor and they tell you that you have fibro glycemia or blastoglomerulitis. I don't know. I'm kind of making up medical words here. But the point is that you have no idea what that is until the doctor tells you. You have no idea what the treatment should be. You know, you don't know whether the doctor is telling you something incorrect or correct or what level of complexity you even need to understand it on. You are essentially a baby just doing what the doctor says. And in the real world, you know, you can you can argue that, yeah, but what if people, you know, looked it up and became really informed, but that's not what happens in the real world. In the real world, people get an instruction from their doctor. Their doctor says, you have X, take this medicine Y, and people just go do it. They don't, they don't comparison shop. They don't look for second best alternatives. They just do what their doctor says because they trust their doctor. So people don't even really know what they're supposed to be buying until they're told. Um, Similarly, another instance of the way healthcare is simply not a market is when you're having a heart attack or when you are have broken a bone badly, you don't immediately go price shop, you know, the, the nearest four emergency rooms. You just go to the closest emergency room because you'd like to live. Um, people with 
elderly relatives in intensive care don't threaten to take the relative out of intensive care halfway through because they think that there's too many procedures being done. You know, they just you stay in intensive care because otherwise your elderly relative might die. And so you, your view then is that a, a lot of the problems in the healthcare sector are driven by the nature of the sector itself and not uh, broadly by the regulatory regimes that surround it? Essentially, yes. All the problems I've described are problems that would exist whether the state intervened in the market or not. You know, the fact that people don't understand their own bodies and are not going to have an MD understanding of medicine, that's permanent. The fact that people are not going to comparison shop when they're having a heart attack or when they're in the middle of a two-week stay in the ICU, you know, they're not going to threaten to move to another ICU unless you lower the price. That's permanent. That's that that doesn't change based on government intervention. So you see, you say that the information asymmetries is that's that's something that's uh, permanent as well. I mean, we all use proxies to make decisions about uh, all manner of things in our lives, and you say healthcare is is immune to uh, the development or uh, a market simply would not be created for better proxies for decision making in healthcare. I think the barriers in healthcare are particularly strong. Um, I think that. We can use proxies and they're very reasonable in some circumstances, but they don't apply in every circumstance. Um, and healthcare is one with just particularly large barriers psychologically, structurally to, to making informed decisions. If you were to try to win over a libertarian, someone who does not support uh, the welfare state, somebody who views uh, healthcare as pretty much like any other uh, product that we would want to buy and and wants to essentially get the government, especially the federal government, out of as much of our lives as possible. What would be your one minute pitch to them to say, hey, think about becoming a neoliberal? So for healthcare specifically, I would just point to the fact that the United States generally gets worse outcomes and spends more money than almost any other first world country. And there's a variety of other systems out there. I'm not saying that we necessarily need to go full United Kingdom, where the government controls literally everything almost, and every doctor works for the government, and it's really, really nationalized. You know, their system is better than ours in terms of outcomes, but so is the German system that's multi-payer and has a lot of private insurance. So is the Singaporean system. The, the variety of healthcare systems that are better than the United States currently is is staggering. So... I'm not a zealot in terms of which one of those systems we go to, but I know that the current system is pretty badly messed up. And that that's my 30-second pitch there. More broadly, I would say if you want to understand the nature of markets on, on a deeper level, one of the books that I like to recommend is um, Who Gets What and Why by Alvin Roth. He's a Nobel win Prize winning economist who works in what you'd call matching theory or, or market design, where he works in markets that are very unusual, that money can't be used for payment for whatever reason, like um, matching students into medical schools or high school students into New York City high schools, where it's not really acceptable to just buy a spot. You have to match people in that market another way. And it really gives you an insight into the fact that markets are a human creation. This is something we created. They're not something that are divinely inspired that just happen. Markets are a construct of society, and it really matters how we build them. 
and how we structure them, how we how they interact with our cultural institutions. And it gives you an insight for when they work well, in what circumstances they're extremely powerful at generating prosperity, and in what circumstances we need to change the way we design our markets, because it's an active choice that we make. Jeremiah Johnson is the policy director for the Neoliberal Project and host of the Neoliberal Project podcast. We spoke last week. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.